We are sinful and separated from God. God wanted that to change, so he provided a way for us to be reconciled to him, and that is through his son, Jesus, who died on the cross. Believing in him is the only way to experience that reconciliation. That's what we're talking about. That's what that song was about. I grew up with the old hymns too, but that's because I went to an old fogey church. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I love those hymns. Um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer is thought by many to be one of the greatest German theologians ever. Right up there with Martin Luther himself. He was a man that fought tirelessly to teach the world about the incredible grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He worked as a missionary in Barcelona, London, and the U.S., but he always felt a tug back to the German people. During the rise of Hitler and the Nazi party, Bonhoeffer was able to find asylum in America. Not long after his arrival to the U.S., he couldn't shake the feeling that God was calling him back to Germany to be there during a very difficult and trying time for his countrymen. One American colleague recalled that Bonhoeffer was determined to obey God and was sure that he was doing so in deciding to return to Germany. He knew that the consequences of his obedience were God's business. I did not press him for details of what the work might be. It was abundantly clear from his manner and his tenseness that he felt it something he could not refuse to undertake. In 1839, on an island in the Pacific, on a group of islands in the Pacific, called Vanuatu, two missionaries named John Williams and James Harris landed on shore just to a few minutes later be killed and eaten by cannibals. Nineteen years later, a 34-year-old man named John Patton felt called to take his pregnant wife to Vanuatu for the sake of the gospel. He was exuberantly told, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. To which he replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day of my resurrection body, will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Adoniram Judson became a Christian in 1808 and responded to the call of missions in 1810, which is around the same time that he became engaged to Anne Hasseltine. Listen to this letter he wrote to his future father-in-law. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjugation to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, 
for the sake of perishing immortal souls. For the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means for the eternal woe, from eternal woe and despair. Anne's father, surprisingly, left the decision entirely up to his daughter. And in a letter to a friend, she said, I have come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God and his providence shall see fit to place me. They were married in February of 1812 and promptly left for India, and then went from there to Burma. During the month of June, we've been discussing the topic of global missions and answering common questions that arise from that topic or just thinking biblically about that topic. To close the sermon series, I'll answer one of the more common questions, which is who is called to global missions? Today, we're keeping it simple as far as where we'll be in Scripture. We're just going to be in... Um, Matthew chapter 11, sorry, Matthew chapter 24, the Great Commission, Um, what Ken read earlier. It is simply God's command to his disciples, to, um, to, and to his followers up until today, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You've probably heard it. It's significant because it's the command that Jesus gave before he left. Um, Essentially, it was him saying, I'm leaving, you're in charge now, this is what you have to do. That's why there's so much importance placed on it. Two common objections or questions come up from this topic. The first is, how do you know that this great commission extends beyond the immediate 11 disciples to all Christ's followers. So let's look at that chapter. Um, by the way, the name Galilee is mentioned a few times. That's just where this great commission was given. It's the location that it was given. Earlier in that chapter, Jesus is resurrected, appears to the disciples and tells them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. And then in verses 16 and 17, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. We can conclude from that and from other gospel accounts that at this point in time, all eleven disciples had met Jesus after he was resurrected. Even doubting Thomas, at this point believed. And so if we look back where it says, now the 11, remember there's 11 disciples because Judas betrayed Jesus. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. We can infer from that that the ones that doubted were not the original 11 Because like I said, even doubting Thomas at that point came to believe. 
So that means there are people there in attendance outside of the original 11. This is significant because this would suggest that the Great Commission was originally intended for more than just the 11 disciples. He's saying to more than just the disciples, the original disciples, go make disciples of all nations. But still, the objection could be made that Jesus was only talking to those physically present. Even if there was more present than the original 11 disciples, one could say he's just talking to them. But then I would point to the fact that Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. If he only meant the commission to be for those physically present at the time, why would he suggest that, that, w- that he would only be there for those few people? We know from the context of the rest of the New Testament that that isn't true. He's there for his church. So one cannot say that command was only for those present. We can only conclude that that command was to pass down through the ages to us today and to those that come after us. The second objection, so the first was that command's not meant for me. The second, I'm not called to global missions. That's only for certain people. It is true that not everyone is called to abandon their lives, go cross-culturally somewhere to another country, to the ends of the earth, possibly die. That's true. However, Pastor John made a statement the first or second week that we were doing this that I wholeheartedly agree with and want to talk about a little bit. Every professing Christian is either a sender or a goer but we are all called to make disciples of all nations. So as a Christian, most of us are going to be senders by default, but all of us are either senders or goers. But I want to hit on that, that we're still called to fulfill that great commission, whether we're staying here or we're going. To defend Pastor John's statement, in Romans chapter 15 Verse 24, Paul says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my, on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul is clearly saying here to the Roman people who, who the Roman church who he's writing to are Christians. They have at this point a strong um, body of Christians <coughs> believing. He's telling them, he's asking them to help him on his way, indicating that they have a responsibility in helping to send him. Earlier in the same letter, in uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15, Paul says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We see here in the same phrase, how are they to hear unless someone's preaching, unless someone goes? How are they to preach unless they are sent, unless there's a sender? So again, we see that in Scripture, the two camps, the 
the sender and the goer. From these two passages, um, we can conclude with evidence that, that that's true. In whichever category you fall, wherever, whether you're, you go or send, you are called to fulfill the Great Commission, like I said. I like to say that a Christian is called to share the gospel wherever they are and wherever they will be. I don't get a pass from sharing the gospel to people in Kalamazoo just because I'm called to Kenya eventually. I'm here right now. At the same time, those who are called to live and stay in Kalamazoo don't get a pass from, at the very least, being concerned for the spiritual welfare of people in Kenya or anywhere else. I once had the privilege of sharing the gospel with a young college student named Michael in, the, in Cote d'Ivoire. When I shared the gospel with him, when I was finished, he told me he wanted to be a Christian and he prayed that God would take over his life and that um, he would be saved. I told him I'd like to meet him later in the day to go through some lessons, just how basic lessons of how Christians should live their life, what he could expect now that he was a Christian, things like that. He agreed, and later that afternoon, I was surprised to see that he was with two other young students. He told me he wanted to bring his friends so that they could also hear that gospel message. I said, Michael, you know the gospel. You've already responded to it, so you can share it. And I could tell he was nervous. He didn't share it as eloquently as Billy Graham or any of the people I just read, but he shared the gospel. And at the end of it, both of his friends, one of which had been a Muslim his entire life, prayed to receive the Lord as their Savior. I mentioned that story because Michael understood the truth that when God catches you, you have to go catch others. It's what Pastor John said in the first week. We're caught to go catch. Now I have to say, and I've said this in weeks past, this isn't a religious obligation. Michael didn't do this because it was a rule he knew he had to follow now that he was a Christian. Remember, he didn't really know much about Christianity. At this point in time, he didn't even know what the Great Commission was. He didn't know Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. He just knew he had a story and he had to tell it. I mention this because as Christians in Western society, it's easy for us to have a peacetime mentality. And a lot of times in other countries, especially where Christians are persecuted, they know that they're fighting. They know there's a message that they have to give. The cost is discussed previous weeks could be great. I don't want to fool you into thinking that when you accept the call into missions, whether you're a sender or a goer, that it'll be easy. 
It won't be. But the reward will be far greater than all we could hope and imagine. It will be eternal. After Dietrich Bonhoeffer returned to Germany, he was imprisoned. While being held in a schoolroom, which was at the time being used as a makeshift cell, Bonhoeffer led the other prisoners in a Sunday morning service. He preached from the verses Isaiah 53:5, with his stripes we are healed, and 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, by his great mercy we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. One who was present with Bonhoeffer spoke, said that he spoke to us in a manner that reached the hearts of all. He planned to preach more, but was prevented when two guards came in and said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, get ready to come with us. Those words had come to mean only one thing, the scaffold. In the words of a bishop who was present, we bade him goodbye, and he drew me aside. He said, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. He would be executed less than 24 hours later. A doctor who was present at the execution said this, through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison guard, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. John Patton's wife and newborn son would die just one year after arriving on the Vanuatu Island of Tana. After continuing in his work in spite of grief from those deaths, criticism for even going in the first place, a colleague telling him he should have died instead of his wife, and receiving constant threats on his life from those who he was trying to save with the gospel, he persisted. Patton writes this of one convert, a chief Fontana who came to visit him before his death. Farewell, I am very near death now. We will meet again in Jesus and with Jesus. Thus died a man who had been a cannibal chief. But by the grace of God and the love of Jesus changed, transfigured into a character of light and beauty. What think ye of this, ye skeptics, as to the reality of conversion? I knew that day, and I know now that there is one soul, at least from Tana, to sing the glories of Jesus. The glories of Jesus in heaven, and oh, the rapture when I meet him there.
Ann Judson, who gave up so much to follow the Lord's calling, gave birth to three children. All of them passed away at a very early age. She, after giving birth to the third, also passed away. Her husband, Adoniram, continued his work. Inciting the reason he could keep going through the difficulties, he said, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by God's infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated suffering. After six years, six years of hard labor, Adoniram saw his first convert. After that, converts spread like wildfire. In the first year after that convert, he estimated to give out 10,000 tracts and only to those who asked for them. He had 6,000 visitors that came to his house inquiring about who Jesus was. David Platt says, My biggest fear even now is that I will hear Jesus' words and walk away content to settle for less than radical obedience to him. If you're a sender, my questions are, who are you sending and how are you accomplishing the Great Commission here in Kalamazoo or wherever you live? So you're not called to be the one to literally take the message to all the corners of the earth. But are you at least making sure your neighbor knows who Jesus is? or that your co-workers know who Jesus is. If you're a goer, my question is, when are you going? What are you waiting for? And how are you accomplishing the Great Commission until you go? Matthew 24, 44, Jesus says, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I don't mean to say this condescendingly, but if you have been called and you're, not wait, and you're waiting, if you've been called and you're not going, there has to be a good reason. Because the time is near and it's unexpected. I'm going to be a little bold today. My wife was looking over at my shoulder at my notes and saw that. She said, what do you mean? You're always bold. (laughs) I'm going to be bold today in saying that God is calling someone from City Gate, whether it's one, two, or 20, to sacrifice and to go into full-time missions to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's calling the rest of us to sacrifice and send them. There is no greater call or duty than to do everything within our power to send multitudes of people to all corners of the earth to preach the gospel and display God's glory in every dark and destitute corner of the world. If the church is not doing that, they're failing and they're dying. That's what the church was created to do, was to send the gospel. This is the battle cry. This is the William Wallace speech before the charge. This is not the speech before the battle. This is the speech during the battle. Who's called to missions? You. 
The time for an apathetic attitude towards global missions has to stop. The time is urgent. Why have John and I been sharing these stories of Christians suffering? It's not to make you depressed. If anything, it's to wake you up to the, it's to wake you up to the reality that there is something that makes the suffering seem minuscule. If anything, it's to have the opposite effect of depressing you. It's the fact that there's something else out there to give you an eternal perspective. John Piper says, The suffering of the servants of God born with faith and even praise is a shattering experience to apathetic saints whose lives are empty in the midst of countless comforts. Many in the American church, like I've said, have a peacetime mentality. We're blessed to live here. We're blessed that everything seems peaceful. But please allow me to shatter that mentality and inform you that we are not at peace. We are in a cosmic war raging right now as we speak. This information should push you to fight. Take every thought captive. The Bible is littered with these verses pointing us to God, pointing us to this eternality that we have to have in mind. So I'll end with this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear unless some, without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Who's called the missions? We are. If you don't go, if we don't go, who will? If Citygate doesn't respond to the command from Jesus to take the gospel to all nations, why are we here? We've been told what to do. The time to go is now. We don't know the hour that Jesus will return, but we know until he does what to do. We go, we send. Hopefully we can do both at the same time.